Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, Kristen Kynes, the co-founder and CEO of Catch, a benefits platform for freelancers or just people that don't work for a big company. Kristen was so much fun to speak with, and this conversation ahead is just filled with practical advice and also a very useful framework for how to find happiness in your career. As we'll get into in the pod, Kristen graduated from college in 2010, a pretty difficult time to be looking for your first real job. But instead of feeling defeated, like the universe was against her, Kristen hustled got a job, maybe not the exact right one, but came away from the experience with a powerful outlook that you don't have to have it all figured out at 22, 32, or even 42. Just keep making decisions that make you happy. And in a career, like in a bank account over time, and it could be a very long time, those happiness choices, they'll compound. So take what you can get, have a positive outlook with it, learn what you can from it, meet all the people you can, and keep pushing forward. That's all we can do. Okay, enough for me. Let's hear it from Kristen. Kristen, hi. Hi, nice to see you. Second podcast sitting in this hallway. The, the last one went, okay, people were like, one guy wheeled this really loud. <laughs> then throw it. But authentic. Like I said, yeah, authentic. It is what it is. You got to make do. It's kind of like the startup mentality. Like nothing's going to go as planned. It's always going to be a little bit more difficult. The room's not going to be available. The batteries are going to die. The mics aren't going to work, but we prevail. Yes, that's right. Okay, so um, let's. I guess let's start with college. Is is, is that a good place to start? Sure, yeah. Okay, where'd you go to college? Uh, Pepperdine University in Malibu, California. Pretty. They have that big grass yeah. slope as you drive by PCH. It's like, wow, what? Why is this so pretty? Why is this? Cool? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's a great place to study. <laughs> uh, it's a great place to live. I don't know if it's a great place to study. It's probably like there's a lot of temptation there. Yeah, but you know, you can sit on the beach and have your books open. And I don't know. Worked okay for me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I actually went to UCSB. Not, I didn't go there, but I went there two weeks ago for the first time. Mm-hmm. I was like, man, I picked the wrong school. It's beautiful. Yeah, I actually worked for UCSB every summer. Oh, really? Yeah, during college. Yeah, that's great. But you grew up in Nevada, you said, in Reno. Reno, yeah, Reno, Nevada. Um, okay, and were your parents entrepreneurs? Did they work for big <laughs> companies? Like, what was instilled in you growing up? Uh so my neither of my parents went to college. I'm first generation mm-hmm. college student. Um, my my dad worked for the phone company for 30 years. He you know installed telephones in people's homes. Then he installed payphones. Then he uninstalled payphones <laughs> um, over the course of his career. My mom was an office manager. Um, but I think for both of them, it was really important that I um, achieve whatever I could. And they really instilled in me the values of sort of supporting the working class and supporting people who like, you know, use labor to create our economy. Um, so I think my dad was in the union with the phone company. And I think that sort of union perspective has played a lot into like how we think about catch and what we do there. Ah, That's that you're right. That's, that's a very good answer. <laughs> that, that is like um, foundational. Yeah. And, uh, okay. So so then you then you go to uh, to Malibu for school, mm-hmm. and you're like you have this like working man's mentality inside of you. And then what do you 
what are you taking in school? Are you like, I'm going to go? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was a, a math and economics double major mm-hmm. um, and the crisis hit while I was in college and the job opportunities just kind of evaporated. Yep. Um, so I chose to go to grad school right after undergrad. I went to graduate school in London, um, finished my master's in Shanghai, mostly just to kill a little bit of time until I right. could hopefully find a job that was at least that I saw a trajectory that I wanted you to graduated be graduated in 10? Uh, undergrad in 10, 10, grad school in 11. I got you undergrad in nine. Yeah. Yeah. And I think nine got it the worst. Oh, God. Just like, <laughs> oh my God. I'm like, I'd be lucky to get a Starbucks job right now. That's right. And I think I saw a lot of my classmates doing that. And I made the decision to take on more student debt, which is very risky, but to place a bet on myself that I thought would put me on a better trajectory. So after business school, I took a job consulting in Boston. Um, the, the first offer I got was a part-time internship. I was making $2,000 a month. Um, and so for the first couple months out of graduate school, when I was paying off those student loans, I was making barely a living wage. Um, and I think that that sort of set me on this path to just be hungry and just like I decided that I was going to get an offer full time. And so I, I worked double as many hours as I needed to, to, to get that full time offer. Um, cause as you know, the economy then it was, it was tough. Like, oh, yeah. the, you know, the labor market now is very, very different, but back then it was just anything you could do to prove yourself valuable, whatever right. salary you could get, whether or not you got benefits. I was, was sending emails <laughs> that said, I'll work for free. Yeah. And like those didn't even go anywhere. You didn't get anything. Yeah. yeah. You can't, you can't do that. That, that doesn't work. Right. <laughs> I don't know why that doesn't work, but that, that should work. But, but it's like, a call. it's probably good that that doesn't work. Yeah, it, it wouldn't actually work. Like <laughs> right. unpaid internships, like kind of, you don't really like feel motivated. But Totally. Um, okay, so do you get the job? Yeah, I got a full-time offer. Um, I spent my first three years of my career consulting, um, mostly for Fortune 500 companies building innovation systems. So learned a lot. Um, worked for companies like Cisco and Dell. Um, it was EMC before Dell bought them. Um, mostly in Shanghai, China, and uh, San Francisco, where most of my clients were. <sighs> Um, which was definitely an interesting way to <laughs> start your professional career. Um, and then from there, I just, you know, a couple years in had the classic consulting outcome, which is that you get tired of doing work for other people. Right. You get you tired of seeing your work, yeah. like go into file cabinets and people being like, thanks so much. Um, and you get a little bit burned out on the travel. Um, yeah. Shanghai is far from Boston. <laughs> Um, so from there, I actually went to, that's when I started in fintech, I went to a nonprofit um, that did financial services innovation for the underserved. So how do you build banking products for people who don't have access to sort of high income tools and advisors? Mm-hmm. And was that in Boston? Yes, I was in Boston, founded by an HBS professor. Um, and you know, the tools were mostly behavioral economics, just like simple things like framing and really just thinking about like, how do you change behavior in a way that um, is sustainable, right? You can't like force people to do things. We know a lot of things that don't work um, for trying to encourage people to save money. And so I, I think I learned a lot about um, understanding your customer, or your user, and really just going deep into like, not judging, not being patronizing, but really just thinking about like, what is best for them and trying to operate in the context that they live in. Yeah. So what was it about this job that, I mean, was it just like, I don't want to do consulting anymore. I want to go, fintech is interesting. I don't know. Like what, what was it? 
Um, yeah, I was kind of burned out on consulting. Yeah. Uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. A lot of people start consulting because they're like, I'll figure out what I want to do. But I didn't feel like I knew. Um, and it was just a great opportunity because the firm had sort of reorganized itself to be more of an innovation pipeline. So it had gone from being more of a traditional nonprofit running projects um, to operating a pipeline of like, how do we ideate? Then how do we like pilot those innovations? Then how do we scale them? Um, and that was sort of the expertise that I brought in from consulting. Mm -hmm. So it was just like right great place. Process. Yeah, yeah, right place, right time, process. like good fit. Um, and that was that was my introduction into fintech, and I, I think so. It wasn't anything to do with fintech. It was just like this seems like a cool use yeah. of my skills. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and I was a math and economics major, so it sort of like fit into things uh -huh. that I understood and and that I you know felt comfortable operating. In. Right, and uh, and so. How was that experience? What happened next? Like, how long were you there? Uh, I was there for about a year. Um, nonprofits are kind of tough. Uh -huh. um, just, just generally for trying to to motivate employees, you take a low salary. Um, there are a lot of things you sacrifice. Um, they did great work, but I was impatient. Um, just got a little bit hungry to see impact faster. Yeah. Um, the grant making process, all that sort of stuff, sure, is just sure, very sure. slow. Um, so I took a bit of a break, I guess a detour, and I ran an accelerator, a startup accelerator in London for a year. Um, very cool opportunity to work with startup founders. I very much did not think I wanted to be a founder. Um, I was like, I want to support entrepreneurs and the ecosystem. But um, after a year, I was like, you know what, I should be an operator. Like I was just, I was okay. like, oh, I could do this. Like I, you know, I think it, it sort of built some confidence for me and, and watching those people and being like, they don't know more than I do. They don't necessarily have more skills. Um, and it sort of gave me that, that I was empowered to sort of make that, that job myself. And you're right. Like you're talking about this motivation that you have inside of you. I mean, you're moving like all over the world and different jobs, industries. It's, it's, it's really cool. Yeah. I think, you know, again, finishing school during a, an economic crisis is a really interesting framing on the rest of your career. And I think I, I want to encourage young people to think about like, you don't necessarily have to have the answer when you're 22 or when you're 30. <laughs> you still don't have to have it. And I think the only thing that I thought was keep making decisions that you think will make you happier and keep making those decisions. There's not one decision that sort of makes or breaks your career. It's just like continuing to make those decisions one after the other. Um, and, you know, our generation changes jobs a lot more frequently yeah. than than ones before, which is, you know, part of why we built Catch as well. Um, but I think just, just embracing that and being willing to take on new opportunities and be comfortable in ambiguity and comfortable solving problems like you'll be invaluable anywhere you go. So that's what you think. If you look back on your career, you've been optimizing for happiness. Um, I've been well. So <laughs> this is a good philosophy question. So I actually believe that happiness is like a reflection of the value that you create, right? Like they say, mm -hmm. you can't buy happiness, right? It's not a, a factor of having enough money. Um, so I think it's more about like, can you add value for others? And like, if you're adding value for others, the byproduct is happiness. Like happiness is the byproduct, not the goal. Right. Humans were put on earth to create. To create value. Yes. Right. To create value for others. And so you can do that in a lot of different ways. There's the nonprofit way. There's the for-profit way. Teachers add a tremendous amount of value. And I think if you can start to think about how you're adding value and if you add a value in a way that's consistent for what you're trying to achieve, like happiness is sort of the byproduct mm. of that. You're right. That's very wise. I, I'm like, <laughs> I can't wait to go listen to this again, uh, which I have to do. But uh yeah, that's that, that's really interesting. Okay, so you go to London, startup accelerator. I'm like, oh shit, I can I can do a startup. Mm -hmm. This seemed daunting. It does seem daunting when you come from like a <laughs> corporate world. It's like, oh, how do I go do a startup? Where like, do you start? Yeah, where do you like? Where do I even start? Yeah, like I went to business school, and everyone's like, oh, I want to do a startup. And I was like, well, <laughs> what problem are you going to solve? Like, well, I don't know yet, but I'm going to do a startup. Yeah, I want to yeah, run a startup. I, I don't yeah. know if that's quite how it works. Yeah, and I I hear that a lot too from people who just like they want sort of the prestige and the glamour, and I think that's like the worst reason yeah. to run a startup because the the glamour is fleeting compared to the the 
downswings and the problems and <laughs> the society and media really glamorizes startups. Yeah. It's like, oh, two guys in a garage and yeah. they raised $10 million. It's like, yeah, it's like, it took long, it probably took yeah. like four years. To, and it, to, to and it, it, yeah, it's painful. It's and painful. Everybody in the, in the world is like telling you, stop. No, you won't. Can't. Yeah, don't like. Exactly. And I think um, we, we went through Y Combinator earlier this year with Catch and, and one of the pieces of advice they gave is they said, um, no matter what they say about you in the media, um, it's wrong. And they were like, whether it's so that you're really great or whether it's that you're really terrible, they're probably wrong. And so it was an interesting way of sort of like stay humble and stay grounded because anything that the media says, if they're like touting you as the greatest thing that's ever happened, you're not. <laughs> and it was sort of like balance out, try and balance out those highs and lows. So, um, yeah. So after the accelerator, I went to, um, I was the first hire at a startup. So I didn't jump straight into founding. I was I think like, that's okay. that's a better way to do it, actually. I was, I was the first hire. Um, I, it was a company that did um, student loan repayment as an employer-led benefit. So that's sort of how I got into the benefits mm -hmm. space. Um, and I was hired as head of product. And it was really challenging. Um, early employees at startups, like, you're, you're not treated as a founder and you don't have the autonomy that a founder has, but you still face a, a lot of the, the challenge. And I think early employees need to sort of create their own networks and systems where they can support each other. Because I think founders have tons of opportunity to like be with other founders and network with other founders. Right, right. But I think early employees, there's definitely a gap in sort of the support network for, for the sorts of things you go through in that role because it's unlike any other type of job or, you know, anything. Right, it's like a mix between founder and employee. Yeah. It's, it's close to, I don't know, close to both but yeah but neither right right interesting yeah <laughs> totally um and then i i went to catch after that so catch was really the opportunity to to step in and put together a lot of the things that i'd seen as themes throughout my career so financial volatility the ability to build wealth through behavioral you know nudges and and behavioral economic tactics um really pulling together that that from my childhood my dad was a part of the union really believing that these benefits are an important part of of how workers succeed and wanting to create something that enabled that at scale right so how long were you at the startup where you were first employee uh, a year and a half a year and a half and then at what point were you like starting to tinker with this my own startup yeah. and finding a co-founder and all yeah so it wasn't my idea it was my co-founder actually had the idea uh -huh. and and came to me um and he was a freelancer and so he had lived the problem of not having a way to save for taxes to get retirement taken care of particularly in an automated and elegant way and so he's a an engineer and a designer and he was like look all these things in our lives that are um that are easy like travel or you know they're, they're fun things that you want to do going out to eat and all those sorts of things they're elegant and they're integrated and they're just like a seamless part of our existence. And then all of these things that we have to do, taxes, health insurance, retirement, are just a disaster. Right. So we wanted to sort of improve that, that sort of 10x improvement. Um, and then he needed someone who had the fintech expertise to be able to execute on making huh, it happen. Like he built the front end and he built this, um, this beautiful prototype of like what he wanted to exist. And I was just like totally blown away. Um, and then he was like, okay, but this is, this is just a front end. It doesn't do anything. He's like, we need to actually yeah. make it do stuff. Um, so we talk a lot about like at catch, we have a neon sign, you know, how every startup has the neon sign on the wall. Ours says do the stuff because you have to actually do it. And, uh, the shortcuts don't, don't actually work. And, and how day. did you guys meet? Um, the fintech scene in Boston is pretty small. Sure. So he was actually at another company that was doing um, 
some sort of data science thing for financial services companies. Um, and that company shut down. And he uh, chose to still go on stage and pitch. Like the, the company had signed up to do this like fintech pitch thing in Boston. And the company shut down. He got laid off, right? Because the company didn't exist. And he still went and pitched the company. I thought that was so cool. That is that. Like it was so, it was so, it was like brave. <laughs> and it was like, yeah. we committed to do this. And so like, this is what the company was trying to achieve. And like, oh. I thought that was really awesome. He sounds very purpose very purpose driven. Yeah. 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 He wants the world. He has this really like clear vision of how the world can be better. And like in sort of the way of like, he's like, this is the prototype. This is how it should work in a way that like, I don't think I've ever had for an individual problem. Oh, like not so just cool. seeing the problem, but seeing the way that it should be instead. Right. That's well, that's fantastic. So it sounds like this is a great uh, business marriage and you guys come together and you start working like on the side, like while you're still at this startup. Or, like, yeah. We had a fairly unusual founding story and that he um, had been working with some fortune 100 companies consulting on the side. So he had already built a team. I actually wasn't the first employee. I joined as a co-founder when there were already, I think five people, six people on the team. Um, so it was, it was kind of an unusual co-founder story, but I think that's the other thing people should know is there is no one right story. You don't have to have the like, oh, we met, we quit our jobs. We sat in a garage for six months. Um, we tried to bootstrap our early funding in a way that would enable us to spend the time we needed to. Um, so I was brought in after there was a small team, um, to just like lead that, that product development to MVP, especially for all the things that in FinTech are particularly challenging, like bank contracts and integrations and stuff that like you don't necessarily you can't just like engineer your way out of right, right? you have to sort of build relationships and spend a lot of time on yeah this is event. this is why so many there's so many problems in fintech that haven't been solved because yeah. it's very complicated and difficult and you have to know the industry pretty well Right. Yeah. And then even when you do know the industry, the big banks are like, no, no, no I don't want to work with a startup. Like, yeah. Let's talk when you have 100,000 customers. That's and- right. They're, yeah, that's right. And and every every bank partner seems to like have this assumption that you've like already existed. They're like, so can you send us your policies for X? And the first thing I would do is like go to Google and be like template for policy for Y. I'm like, we don't have users yet. Like, yeah. What are your <laughs> compliance protocols? Can we have like a legal opinion on that? Right. Like- you have to sort of start building those yourself. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I had a guy on the podcast and he was saying uh, Bryce from Zero, and he was saying how oh, yeah. like they got an office before they got anything, and they had like bankers come to their office, and it was like a professional <laughs> looking. It's like we have nothing. Right. But it's an office, and like the bankers <laughs> would come there, and like, oh, you guys have an office. Yeah. Like, right. Okay. Yeah. You start to build credibility for very small things. Yeah. I would take a template and be like, here's our policy on managing customer complaints. Well, we don't have any customers. We don't really know if this would work. So it was very hypothetical right. in the beginning where you're like, hypothetically, how would we handle that? And then you kind of have to go back and iterate as you actually okay, get customers. Okay, so you, <laughs> you got this small team together. You come in, mm-hmm. you start like trying to put together the backbone of yeah. this beautiful interface that uh, that your co-founder has built. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you raise a little money? Do you just apply to Y Combinator immediately? Like what was what happened? Yeah, so we um, we had that initial bootstrap funding um, that, that kept us going for a while. Um, we launched in August of 2018. Um, and we started fundraising shortly after that. Um, it's hard. Like fundraising is just really challenging. I, I love it right now. Everyone's like, oh, it's so easy to raise money. There's so much money out there. I'm like, the only people saying that are people who are not raising money. Like it's hard. It's just like difficult to do. So we tried to fundraise. Neither of us were particularly branded. Like we didn't work at Google. We weren't, you know, Stanford grads. And so I think the the lack of credentialing just made people fairly skeptical. And, you know, they were like, yeah, we like the idea. But like they weren't sure on the like on our ability to execute. And I think right. investors look for anything that will de-risk 
the the execution risk. Like, can can you actually do this? Um, and so, as we struggled with fundraising, um, we had uh, the founder of Ernest, Lewis Barrel. Um, he was like, "You guys should just apply for YC." And we're like, "We're way too late for that. We're like way too far along." <laughs> and there's this idea that you're like too good for YC. Um, and as fundraising got harder, and we, you know, we just we needed to to get something moving. Um, we applied to YC way late. The deadline for the winter batch is like in October. I think we applied on Christmas Eve. And we were just like, well, I guess we're going to see what we do. They flew us out for the interview. So they bring you out for an interview. They flew us out um, on like New Year's Day. And then we interviewed on the second. And they were like, you're in the batch starts tomorrow. So my co-founder and I moved to California for 10 weeks. But at that point, we were about 12 people. Everybody else stayed in Boston. Um, and it just like it happened that quickly. And then getting into YC obviously makes fundraising sort of converge very quickly. And we raised a pre-seed of a million um, in January. And then we raised a seed round of 5.1 million in March. Awesome. Okay. So we haven't even said what the company really, what catch really does. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we do portable benefits for people who don't get benefits from an employer. So freelancers, contractors, gig workers, part-time, any sort of non-traditional role you can think of, um, those people are left without a safety net that most of us get from our HR department. So we've created one place for them to do tax withholding, retirement, health insurance, and really integrate that process and recreate that sort of paycheck experience where like when you get paid as a W-2, your social security comes out, your taxes come out, like your your, um, your health insurance premiums come out and making it easier for people who have a volatile income to automate that process. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're right. There, there's a screwed up process there. And like there's these yeah. companies like Gusto and like, I want to make yeah. payroll delightful because yeah. it's not delightful. That's and right. Probably, and you're like talking about even more processes that really yeah. aren't delightful. We, we actually, we often refer to ourselves as Gusto for people. Yeah. Like for individuals, we are direct to consumer. We don't sell to small businesses. Like we, we think that Gusto, there are plenty of other solutions for small businesses. Um, and there's obviously a line for the solopreneur who kind of is a small business, but they're a single person. But we really focus on consumers because we think that there's too much overhead for freelancers to be told that like you have to become a business in order to get access to a quality retirement product. We think that that's just a ridiculous assumption. Right. Okay. So um, how do you get customers? And then like, what do they, what happens? Like what's the customer journey? Yeah. Um, so our, our biggest acquisition channel is referral. So people who love our product tell other people about it, um, which is great. But in the early stages, you haven't necessarily fine-tuned your ability to like in like spawn that referral. Like right. we, we kind of it just like happens organically and we're still figuring out like what do we do with that and yeah. how do we make it happen more? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's certainly a good sign that people are finding an experience that they that they really like. Um, we do social, uh, social and search. Social is a lot more effective for us. Um, I think that's you know, one of the things for direct to consumers, you have to be where your consumers are. Um, we've done a lot of experimentation with things like partnerships. I think it's a bit challenging with a product like ours because our base assumption is that like you're an individual not tied to a single place. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, uh, Caviar is one of our partners. Mm -hmm. um, we've done some smaller groups of, of community driven partnerships of like fitness instructors or real estate agents or things like that. Um, but I think what we're seeing is that what works best is when it's really ground up community driven and less of like we go to the CEO of some company that has a marketplace right. and then they sort of push out an email. It seems that the thing that works best for us is when someone says like, I, I use this. I love this. I want to tell everyone I know who's in the same situation as I am that this is something that could help them. So cool. that's okay. I like that. And then, yeah. then so what, it's, it's an app. It's a web like both. Yeah. So uh, we use React Native Web. So we do uh, Android, iOS and uh, web all with the same code. 
It's very fancy. Very elegant. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it allows you to scale your your team. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have engineers specifically. Right, yeah, my I, my startup is built on the same, same yeah, thing, but, you have but mobile, to. not, not yeah. mobile. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's an app. the The goal is to just basically notify people, say, "Hey, it looks like you got paid. Confirm your paycheck withholding." Right. So we want to make sure the control is still in the user's hands because mm-hmm. we're taking twenty five to thirty percent of people's paychecks. You don't want to do that accidentally. And you don't want to do that when people don't want you to do that. So we're working on ways to sort of make that more elegant and automated. But for now, it's like we just need to be in your pocket. And we say, hey, looks like you got paid. You say yes. We say, okay, 20% for taxes, 5% for retirement. We just make that happen all at once. That's that's cool. So the product sounds sounds great. And you guys are back in Boston with a 12-person team now? We're up to 17. 17 people. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And hiring. That's great. And when when were you in YC? Winter, uh, winter twenty nineteen. So January to March of this calendar of this year. This year, yeah. And you came out of there and you did your demo day, and it was it like we actually didn't do demo day. Oh, because you you already raised. We did. We closed the round uh, about a three or four days before demo day. Uh-huh. So. Yeah, demo. I mean, demo day is a great forcing function. But That's you didn't want to be like your your co-founder still didn't want to get up there and be like, ah, I I was supposed to be here, so I'm gonna give. My- so the interesting thing about Y Combinator is that they give you an opportunity to you you like you are allowed to pitch at one demo day. So if you choose not to pitch at your demo day, you can pitch oh, at a really? later so you demo day. That, you get a jail free card. That's right. And so the, the it was basically created, as far as we understand, for for companies that like weren't quite ready. Mm, but just like after 10 weeks. Yeah. yeah. So, but we have heard that there are some companies who have gone back. So we, we've joked that, um, we'll just, we'll just sort of use the, this, the temptation of saying, we're going to go to demo day to investors to help drive urgency every year. So we'll, we'll do our last demo day when we IPO, we'll actually get on stage for our IPO. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Cause like ideally you probably, you probably never do the demo day. That's right. That's the goal, right. Is to say, Hey, we, we may do demo day next year. So let's try and get a raise, you know? So that's the goal. I mean, again, the, the challenging thing about fundraising is finding a way to drive urgency. Um, and Y Combinator, I think has done that better than, than just about any other like Uh, scale thing. (laughs) It's a, it's a very um, differentiated product. There's nothing, nothing really else else like that. Cause you would think like, Look at this team I put together, and look at this huge problem that we're solving, and yeah. like look at this initial product that we've built, and like don't you, wanna, don't you want to fund like, our dreams? And they're like, not really. Well, they they just want to see you de-risk as much as yeah. possible. No, so. I, I only want to fund your dream when everyone else wants to fund wants to fund it. <laughs> right, and I and I don't want to fund it until like the last possible second because it's leverage, right? And so it's like when you're almost out of money, things are much better for a VC than when you have plenty of runway left to go. So they're like, why don't you call us in four months when you're out of money, and let's see where you are then. Right. Um, okay. Well, I love it. Kristen, I'll get you out of here on the last question here. It's like around advice, you know, someone that's early in their career trying mm-hmm. to f- kind of carve out their place in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have anything anything for someone for someone like that? Um, I would say don't be afraid to take risk. Um, I think it, it, I guess it depends on your personality type. For me, I was always uh, looking for a proof point that it was acceptable for me to take risk. And you don't really need that permission. Um, so this is me giving someone permission to not need permission. Um but I think ultimately the the best thing you can do is just like take risk um, and be comfortable in ambiguity. I think that's the other thing that isn't really taught anywhere. Um, and in, some people have it in, in, by their nature and other people have to learn it. But if you can learn to be comfortable with ambiguity, you will be able to see a lot more upside because you don't have to control every step of your career. Right. Yeah, you're right. That's not that's not taught. That's just kind of yeah. A, <laughs> That's okay. Well, Chris, very, very wise. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, yeah, thanks, thanks for thanks having for me. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening today. If you like moving up, the best way you can support us is by telling your friends, helping us grow. Also, leave a review on iTunes. Thanks.